Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. Listeners have asked us to provide pointers to some of the resources we talk about on the show. We now have links to books and articles referenced in recent podcasts that are available on our website. We also offer full transcripts. Go to jimrutshow.com. That's jimrutshow.com. Today's guest is Rachel Haywire. She's a writer, entrepreneur, musician, event producer, and model. Hi, good to be here, Jim. Yeah, good to have you here. I did my research, as I always do, before I have a guest on the podcast, and you have an interesting and highly varied background. Rachel's the author of The New Art Right and Axadixia, if I pronounced that correctly. And a couple of other things that she's associated with. She's now blogging as the cultural futurist at rachelhaywire.substack.com. I actually subscribed to it. It looked pretty interesting to me. And if we don't want the advertising-driven behemoths like uh, Facebook uh, to dominate our discourse, we got to be prepared to lay a few pennies out to support the interesting writers in the world. She's also got a new event coming up called the Elixir Salon, which will be on June 20. You can get uh, details on elixirsalon.net. And uh, here's one I was amazed. I had no idea until I started doing my digging. She ran for president of the United States for the nomination of the Transhumanist Party. And guess what? She came in second. You know, she got 31% of the vote. And now here's the real hilarious one. Uh, The person that beat her has just been expelled from the Transhumanist Party for can you believe this? Can we top this for craziness? Claiming that he's going to grow his own human cells for meat consumption. <laughs> he's been kicked out of the transhumanist party for uh, ca- <laughs> cannibalism, amongst other things. It's too ridiculous. And I actually, I had so many people that voted for me. I had a huge populist support base. I'm more like I don't consider myself a populist in the wider political sphere. I do consider myself a populist in the transhumanist sphere. And I had so many people that were working on my campaign. But uh, apparently, like, some elitist oligarchs at the top, they were a little upset that I was not the right public relations person. Um, All I can say is I might be a little out there, but I'm not a cannibal. So I would have been better PR than that guy. Um, And I actually, I don't even refer to myself as a transhumanist anymore. I call myself a futurist. I feel like transhumanism is mostly just focused on immortality, where my interest is more cybernetics, artificial intelligence, virtual reality, um, just like extending human capacity. Um, And I think uh, the the life extension sector of transhumanism has become like just another facet of public health. And I really don't feel like it's a a movement that is going to grow because they're just trying to, you know, get in with the, the public health community. And I'm like, no, we should be building incredible things with technology. So definitely a difference of vision. Yeah. Well, now, well, since you came in second, now that the cannibal has been booted, do you become the nominee? (laughs) I don't think that I would do anything transhumanist related again. I'm not interested in the United States Transhumanist Party. I'm interested in building my new company, throwing Elixir Salon. And I like a lot of that independent candidates. And I think that, you know, maybe I would help them with their campaign and maybe run independently or even as a libertarian in the future. So um, yeah, who knows what the future holds, right? Absolutely. So you mentioned, uh, I mentioned the Elixir Salon coming up on June 27th. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? So Elixir Salon is my baby. When COVID-19 hit, it seemed like socializing with people Like just on these Zoom calls, it really wasn't doing anything for me. You know, I mean, it was cool to have meetings with friends who I hadn't seen in a while, catch up, talk about COVID-19. But people really just weren't having fun. Um, The first time I had fun at an online event was when I started going to the STOA to go to those events. And I remember a talk I'd had with Alexander Bard, Peter Lindbergh, and Colin Zion. And we had talked about new potential for what we could do like in this, this current time of social distancing. And I believe it was Peter Lindbergh who said, Rachel, you should throw like the online Burning Man. And at first I was like, nah, because Burning Man isn't what it used to be. Um, but the, the general sentiment of getting together creative people 
free thinkers, artists and dancers, and I thought, you know, philosophers, right? Of all things, philosophy is the most important thing right now to me. I think we should do this. I think we should make it happen. So Peter inspired me and I decided to throw the Elixir Salon and bring together philosophers, architects, bring some musicians on board, even poets. We have a noise artist, an industrial musician, everybody from Robin Hansen to Peter Lindbergh himself. We have Nina Power. She is a philosopher and writer in the UK, Miss Metaverse, a futurist. Um, we even have Zach Voorhees, the Google whistleblower. So we've got a really great lineup and it's going to be happening on Saturday at 7 p.m. And we are accepting donations, even though the event is free, and donating 20% of our donations to MAPS because they're working on finding a cure for PTSD using MDMA. And as someone who knows how hard PTSD is and someone who knows how great MDMA works for PTSD, I think it is criminal that it is illegal. You know, so I really love the work that MAPS is doing. It's in the direction of helping people that have trauma, making people's lives better. And we're really happy to be in this collaboration. Yeah, that sounds interesting. Let's go on to the next thing. One of the articles in your new uh, Cultural Futurist is called Pulling Out of the Narrative. Uh, and it That's talks a little, bit, yeah. a little bit about the crazy narrative on all sides of us. And you list a, a number of interesting things to do besides getting engaged. So why don't you uh, tell the audience a little bit about what you mean by pulling out of the narrative? What is the narrative and why should we pull out of it? Well, the narrative is what some people would refer to as the matrix, the stimulation, the series of news articles that keep people outraged or simply like being in the middle of a hornet's nest. You know, um, you have all of these stories coming out about everybody's take on events that they weren't even there for. Everybody has an agenda and people feel like they need to participate and like, you know, take a position for somebody's agenda themselves. And it doesn't really make a lot of sense because the narrative, it's not interested in you. You know, the narrative isn't interested in you. And every time that you comment on a, an article, every time you state your opinion about an issue, you, you're just wasting your time. What you should be doing is creating things and not participating in the circus. So the, the circus, the simulation, the matrix, the narrative. Yeah, it's, uh, it's certainly bizarre, the, the narrative out there. And it's, uh, you know, a mixture of craziness, bad faith, uh, bad information, and then sprinkled here and there, the occasional gem. Yeah. Yeah. And the occasional gem is usually found outside of the narrative. Yeah, at least outside of the uh, the mainstream narrative. You know, yeah. truthfully, I don't even go on Facebook in general anymore other than some specialty groups I'm a member of. And Twitter, I have to curate my lists very carefully or you're back in the middle of the narrative. So it's, yeah. uh, I understand ex exactly what you're saying. Exactly. So what do you, would you suggest people do instead? What are some other ways to spend that energy, particularly here that we're still a lot of us uh, locked up under uh, COVID-19 lockdown? Well, I know that you're big on Game B. Is that the is that your term, by the way? Did you create the term Game B? No, though I was there at the founding. The person who created the term Game B was probably Jordan Hall, mm. and the person who decided that it would be the, a good brand for a social movement was Thor Muller. It was part of a group of us that were meeting every six weeks face-to-face -to, -face to create the future, which is what we were doing. And those people that are interested in Game B can go to the Game B group on Facebook, uh, where there's few thousand people talking about it. Definitely a happening thing, trying to get us out of the current basin of attraction where our society seems to be stuck. Not only is it stuck, but it's on a self-terminating trajectory. You know, it's going to die if something isn't done. And we're working on uh, what needs to be done. Yeah, that's certainly one way to pull out of the narrative to create a game B. And yep. you have your own narrative going on and you're not so much, you're not focused on celebrities. You're not focused on journalist drama. You know, I don't care about what somebody said at the New York Times. I don't care if it's the left or the right complaining. I know I'm never going to get a job at the New York Times, so I don't care what happens there. I'm not interested in things that have no relevance to my life because, I mean, who, who has time for that? Yep, absolutely. Let's go on to uh, three of your tweets, which I found interesting, and I think, you know, actually follow on this theme. In fact, your pin tweet is this. Find your people. Do not worry about who is the center of influence or who is going to bring you power. 
Find people you connect and work well with. Find people who share your visions. Ignore the noise and rebuild civilization. Couldn't say it better myself. Now, then your next one, which I liked, was knew a guy who would never build anything. He was even afraid to go to the store without strategizing and accused anyone with skin in the game of being a pawn. As others built empires and towers, he built an environment of paranoia on his Discord server. And then finally, if we call everyone who takes themselves seriously a narcissist, shaming them into turning themselves into a clown, don't we just have a village of idiots? I love it. Thank you. <laughs> I am glad that you appreciated that. So where do you come where are you coming from on that? I mean, what is that what is the center of your ethos that causes you to say those three things? Uh, probably in the first 10 tweets that I came upon. Well, let's start with the tinned one. You know, when you find people that you can relate to and that you work well with and you don't worry about who's in power, you're living a life that is true to yourself. You're not playing these games in which you're only talking to people because their level of power. You're not trying to move up like a desperate kind of person in the back of a line to a concert. Meanwhile, you know, there might be a much better concert with a much shorter line that you can get into right away and it'll be the best show that you've ever seen. So many people are focused on this centralization. They're focused on who has the power in the center of the narrative. When meanwhile, there are people that are doing things that are so much more interesting outside of that. And if these are people that you connect with, then work with them and build with them and create civilization with them. So that's my, my pinned tweet. Yep. And then the one about the guys who can't go to the store without strategizing. I know people like that, right? Yeah. So this is a lot of people. I am thinking of one guy specifically. And everything that he does is based on what he's read in The Art of War and The 48 Laws of Power. And I, I get that these are important books that we need to understand to like survive this uh, den of wolves, you know, called uh, America or um, the world, depending on where you're standing, um, but these people often don't do anything. And the reason that the Art of War, you know, and 48 Lives of Power were, were written, not to get people to do things, but to give people advice for how to do things. But these people aren't even doing anything. They're just sitting around strategizing and accomplishing nothing at all. I see that all the time. I see another variant on that, uh, two different variants on that. One, I, I call it the philosopher fallacy, that they're going to figure it all out from the top done and deliver us a plan how to remake society, right? I've see, we've seen that playbook before, Nazism and Stalinism. I don't think we need either of those. And our world is way too complex. And you know, my background is from complexity science, the Santa Fe Institute and elsewhere. And one of the things you learn when you study complexity science is, frankly, how little we know about predicting how a social system will unfold over time. So someone that you know sits on the mountaintop philosophizing for 10 years and comes down with a plan and tells us all to do it, yeah, tell them to stuff it, right? And then the other one, one of my current pet peeves, is people who fall into too much introspection. You know, they uh, go down the spiritualism rabbit hole and have fun talking to themselves, but never get around to talking to anybody else. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of, I guess you could call it fear, where people, they just, they view themselves as these grand strategists who sit around and wait for other people to do things and then kind of come in and take power. But what actually happens is they get completely left out um, simply because they're, they're just like sitting around and, and strategizing. Um, what we need is people to strategize collaboratively with people who are doing things. We need strategy and we need action. We need both. You know, and if all the people are doing is sitting around on a Discord channel, you know, talking uh, about optics, and none of these people are doing anything, like how are they any different from the people they're complaining about? Um, you know, it, there, there's this um, idea in the West that I don't like. I actually, um, I believe it's an Eastern idea. And it's about um, non-action being the dominant mode of communication. And um, something about like non-action, I forget the exact name of the phrase, but I, I don't like how America, a country that was founded on creation, that was founded, you know, we're, we're frontierists, right? Um, and we're builders, you know? And for us to suddenly become, um, you know, just like these non-doers, these, these non-players, um, 
NPCs, you know, um, <laughs> whatever the latest name is for them. I think a lot of people that only strategize that don't do don't realize that they too are the NPCs. You know, they, they like to think of themselves as different. Um, and I, I don't really think they are. Yeah, I agree. You know, in fact, at least in my version of Game B, one of the things about Game B is there's a lot, there is no canonical Game B. There is no Game B org. There's just various of us telling our versions of the story. In my version of the story, uh, one of the uh, watchwords is what I call bias for action, right? Yes. Everything else being equal, you can sit on your ass, you can go out and do something. And I can tell you which one I'll bet on in terms of actually changing the world, right? Yep. I, I love that, I, that I saw that in you. That's one of the reasons I reached out to you. I saw you as a person who, they don't always succeed, but you're always doing something, right? Yeah, and even if we don't succeed the first or the second or a hey, third time, we're going to learn from our failures, and then we will succeed uh, eventually if we just keep doing what we care about and we keep putting out there things that matter to us. We learn, we become more active, we figure it out, you know, um, but we, we are people that do things and there, there are many that do not. And well, I, I just think that people have become meek and docile in America. And I, I don't know if it's like, um, like this, this new kind of influence of, uh, maybe like more Eastern thought, um, where it's like, you just need to sit there, you know, and wait for things to happen and um, like, okay, I get that. If you want an easy life and you don't have a lot of passion um, or desire in you to really affect anything, um, but that's just not my style. I'm an American who likes doing things. I'm an American who likes building. I believe that ambition is good. And I don't like that people shame each other for ambition. And that could segue into my third tweet. Uh, about narcissism and shaming and how that creates a village of idiots. A lot of people are considered to be, the, the, the term that a lot of these, you know, like irony bros like to throw around is lacking self-awareness. And they're just really focused on how other people lack self-awareness, which, which to me is ironic because they don't have the self-awareness that all they do is complain about other people lacking self-awareness. Um, so you got these people with no self-awareness complaining about how other people don't have self-awareness because they take themselves too seriously. How dare you not make an ironic joke? How dare you have a serious discussion? Why, why so serious? You're not fun. Um, so they get shamed for being narcissistic, even if they're not. Um, the actual definition of narcissist is being extremely fixated on oneself and one ego, taking yourself seriously does not mean you're a narcissist. It just means maybe you're just uh, different from people in this generation, right? Um, so these people get shamed for taking themselves too seriously. They get called narcissists and then they become clowns, you know, because they get shamed. So they start turning everything into a joke. You know, you can see it in the, the Joker movie. A lot of that rhetoric is alluded to. Um, and yeah, it creates a village of idiots. And what we need is multiple villages of people who can take themselves seriously. That doesn't mean they can't have fun or tell jokes, but it means there should be like a basic civil communication in which people can take things seriously. I mean, and not be labeled as narcissists and shamed for it. It's like that the more you want to talk about a serious idea, the more likely somebody is to just like shame you for it. And um, yeah, I, I don't want to have a village of idiots. Yep. And you know, I got to tell you, you, there are a lot of these people out here who, you know, I, I at least complain about their perspective as postmodernist, essentially, where ideas aren't to be taken seriously and everything is to be subverted. And uh, there may be times for that kind of critique might be useful to find problems in existing structures, but it does not strike me as the way we build what comes next, right? You can't make fun of everybody who's seriously trying to build what comes next and actually get there. And I will say that's one of the things I like a lot about our Game B community. While we have many perspectives from far right to far left and to directions that neither right nor left describes accurately, yet we're all serious players. We all think that we're doing something that's important for the future of humanity. And nobody undermines anybody for you know engaging ideas seriously and doing serious work. And I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. So let's move on to the next topic. Cool. Uh, one thing I was a little surprised, I've read some of your stuff from time to time, but I didn't quite realize how deep you had gone into the neo-reactionary side of things. Here's a uh, actual quote from you from one of your writings. I was an early adopter of neo-reactionary philosophy 
propelled into the discourse by accelerationist philosopher Nick Land alongside political strategist Curtis Yarvin. My purpose for exploring what struck me, as I'll be honest, a fringe community of dark triad lunatics was cultural. My goal was to usher in a new metaphysical current that I dubbed the art right. Before we get into the details of your travels in uh, neo-reactionary land, first I got to ask, how did a nice progressive Jewish girl like you get drawn to the right? Well, I'm definitely not progressive because of what progressive has turned into. Maybe I'm like a, a classical progressive or, or something like that. Um, but it was because I was interested in having real discussions. People in the neoliberal norms of society were not able to be honest with each other. They were just focused on PR. They didn't say what was really on their mind. And, um, you know, for near reaction for me was just like me talking to a few people on Twitter really early on in the game. Uh, I talked about this on the Justin Murphy show. It, it wasn't like I wanted to join, you know, like some, some like far right movement or something. It was just like, these are people that I can have honest discussions with. I like that we can be honest with each other. Um, and it, it was a fringe community of dark triad lunatics. Um, I, I'm very fascinated with dark triad personalities, um, and I think there's a lot that can be learned from dark triad personalities, and I have a few dark triad personalities myself, not just majority of neo-reactionary people, which is why I publicly exited the movement. Um, a lot of these people are just like straight up sociopaths, um, but for, for me, this is, the I guess, the battle, and maybe for a lot of other women who are what I would consider like dark philosophers, um, I call us philosopher queens now, is like, how do we meet people that we can have discussions with on darker issues without running into people who don't like us simply because we like have tattoos or, you know, are Jewish or uh, just like a, a little weird, you know, like how can we have discussions on dark and difficult issues with people who are not nasty, you know? Um, and I, I'm like, well, I have a problem. I'm going to create a solution. Um, Elixir Salam is one of the solutions. Um, just building a community of people that could have interesting discussions that I could be real with that were also, um, you know, not, not um, you know, uh, neo-reactionaries. So, um, yeah, how, how I view neo-reaction, it's something that I explore because I wanted interesting people to talk to. I do not endorse it. Um, but there are some good ideas that were proposed, um, like Exit Over Voice being a big one, you know, which is close to the game B theory that you have and close to the pulling out of the narrative idea. It is simply building alternative nations, alternative societies, alternative industries. Um, you, can, you can read on the, the Diamond Age by Neil Stevenson. You know, you, you create different, um, even temporary autonomous zones where people can live in their own way. You have alternative competing governments to the main government, right? Um, why have one government in America when we can have 50, right? Let, let, let 50 governments bloom. I did a little bit of reading in Mencius Moldbug's uh, writings. That was uh, Curtis's political moniker. And, you know, while I found it kind of, it was intricate and well and deeply thought out, at the end of the day, I said, you know, this guy's just a, a monarchist, feudalist, not the kind of person that I would react to their politics correctly. Not what I'm looking for for the future. Yeah. But I will say, I have interacted a bit with Curtis Yarvin in real life in his role on the Urbit Project. Oh, okay. Yeah, I have a few friends that work at Urbit, and I also don't agree with Yarvin's philosophies. Um <laughs> I mean, the, the article that you quoted from was actually me critiquing Moldbeg himself, um, Mr. Yarvin. You know, he's um, he's like one of those all strategy people, um, but, but at least he is taking action. Um, but there are a lot of fans of his that are just a, about the the optics chatter that don't get anything done. Um, and I don't I, actually, Curtis isn't involved in Urban anymore, from what I understand. I, I think that his problem is that he is trying to become the new Machiavelli. But he doesn't understand that in order to have a real influence, you need aesthetics, you need culture. So it's kind of like, thank you, Curtis, for, you know, like writing your, your new version of The Prince. I'm excited to read it when it comes out. Um, but nobody's ever going to know who he is outside of these little circles because he doesn't really engage with culture. He doesn't really engage with the, the flow, the, the pulse of humanity. That's not the same as the narrative. The pulse of humanity, it's almost 
like an Evolian kind of, it's a, a higher force or so a lot, a lot of Catholics could allude to, to this. It's an inner power, you know, um, of passionate people who, who have the, this force inside of them, you could say. Um, I notice it in, in people like, like you, um, Caleb, you know, it's the, this is important to have. Um, and I think that people like Curtis don't want it to exist because they kind of just want to control everything. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think that like having that force of power that, that inspires you, you know, that some might see as like some type of divinity, others might see as some type of delusion, um, whatever it is, we need to understand it. Uh, before we go on, actually, I forgot to ask you this question before. My audience isn't necessarily up on all the buzzwords around this stuff. What is the dark triad? Frankly, I'm not 100% sure myself. Okay, so the dark triad is uh, three personality traits. There is Machiavellianism, there is psychopathy, and there is neuroticism. And we actually, I might have the third one wrong. It's been a while since I've like really delved into dark triad. Um, oh, narcissism, Machiavellianism, and psychopathy. So um, yeah, these are the three traits that apparently make you very hard to work with. Um, <laughs> something of, of that sort. Um, because there's so much volatility. You know, there, there's so much infighting. You have, I'm the biggest god in the room. No, I'm the biggest god. I'm the ruler of hell. I'm the monarch of Vincent Company here. And, you know, it's actually much better to, to be the meanest person in the room and work with nice people that you don't need to be worried about screwing you over, you know, um, because if it's just like a, a den of, of wolves, the wolves are going to eat each other. Yeah. And it's just not the right way to go forward. I just had a really wonderful two podcast series with Tyson Yunkaporta recently, which will have published right before this one or a couple of weeks before this one comes out. And in that, he basically said that the original sin of mankind, uh, which he called, which he labeled, he's an indigenous Australian person, and but also a, a scholar of complexity science, which made for a fascinating conversation, uh, that in the indigenous perspective, the downfall of mankind is narcissism, the belief that I am better than you without any reason other than I said so. And that sounds like it's part of this dark triad. And oh, yeah. uh, I got to say... I don't think those are the kind of people that are going to build the future. I certainly hope not. And in fact, in the other part of this dark triad thing you mentioned is uh, sociopathy. Uh, you know, one of one of our key analyses is that power attracts sociopaths. Oh, yeah. In my working days, I was involved at pretty high levels in corporate America, Wall Street. I even worked in the White House for a little while. And my perspective is that at the sea levels of larger American corporations, probably 10% of the people are sociopaths. And that is not good. In our Game B world, one of the things we're always on the lookout is how do we build in institutional structures such that sociopaths are not pulled to the levers of power? And you know, part, of, part of the way to do that is by having less levers of power, but instead are routed to where they may actually be useful. You know, frankly, a, so yeah. you know, a sociopath is probably good as a warrior, right? You exactly. want someone to just go out, go out there and kill, right? But a sociopath as a leader, no thank you very much. So I would say that if you uh, run into a, a philosophy or an organization where you're seeing sociopaths in positions of power, run, don't walk would be my recommendation. And I, and I would also add learn from them. Um, and there was an article I wrote at Trigger Warnings several years ago, um, 2016, actually, it's called The Sociopath's Coma. And I work to deconstruct sociopathy for what it is. And the conclusion that I came to is that sociopaths are bound by their puppet master reality titles. And they can't imagine a world in which they're not pulling the strings. So um, I don't know if you know about neurolinguistic programming. I'm sure you do, actually. You know about the, the law of requisite variety, right? The more options you have, the more moves you can make. You know, I have intentionally not dug into the kind of the pop culture linguistic programming stuff. It looked to me, uh, neuro-linguistic programming, it looked to me a little bit like a packaged cult kind of thing. But I do know a lot about cognitive neuroscience, so I may be able to, hmm. to react to some. Not to the packaged pop culture NLP thing. Okay, yeah. And then if you know a lot about cognitive neuroscience, NLP will seem like a joke to you. Um, to other people, it's a way of life. Um, it's about mirroring people, finding their dominant senses. Like if somebody says... I see that this is something that's really interesting. Then you want to like speak to them in, you know, um, visual metaphors or somebody's like, I heard you. And then you want to respond to them in a, you know, auditory way to get their, to gain their dominant sense. So you can um, build rapport with them um, or claim power over them, depending on how you want to look at it. Um, but what, what I 
noticed um, about the law of requisite variety, which simply means that the more options you have, the more moves you can make, that this is a game that initially it seems rigged in favor of the sociopath because they're not bound by emotional reactions. They don't have moralistic impulses. They are not stuck in this human cognition frame. They can do horrible things and not feel bad about it. And they don't, they don't experience emotion. Um, but then I started to think about it more. They don't have the visceral passion that's only possible in people who aren't like that. So even though they can imitate emotion, they know they're missing a human core. And people, they can tell that they're a bit too perfect. You know, they don't possess the capacity to display emotional weakness or emotional strength because they don't experience it. So this is where I say sociopaths are at a disadvantage because they don't have the capacity to show that they are humans with emotions. Um, the, the best thing they can do is mimicry. That, that's all they're capable of is, is mimicry. Um, they're trapped in a modality of superficial perfection. Um, and they also can't build any rapport with people who recognize them for an actor. They, they conceal their flaws to such a point of dull emptiness that it's just like, obviously, you know, this is a wolf in sheep's clothing. Um, I've often described it as a highly conscientious person who is excessively civil. You know, um, these are the people that we need to watch out for. We have the scapegoats, the designated villains, the, uh, you know, bad guys of the world that are constantly getting articles written about how bad they are. Um, but the worst people are the ones that pretend to be nice guys. And those are the real sociopaths. Um, so my solution to the sociopath problem is that we should have complete mastery over them. So, and this is back to what you were talking about, how sociopaths could be useful, you know, um, but we can mimic their games of puppet mastery. We can explore the modality of sociopathy, but it's still a coma, right? It's somewhat exciting and entertaining, but it's really debilitating in terms of emotional or moral strategy. So they lack the tools to connect with other people in a true meaningful way. So what we should do is have complete mastery over them themselves. I mean, we're treating them how they treat others. We might as well respect it. We should view sociopaths as sociopaths view other people. Sociopaths should become our personal typings. Um, and this is how I see the, the way to solve this is to have sociopaths as our playthings, understanding them like they understand other humans, feed them at their own game, I mean, learn from them, learn how to be a moral, emotional person who understands how to be a sociopath when you need to. As long as you don't hurt anybody, I guess you, you could call me a libertarian. Um, I, I believe in the NAP, the non-aggression principle. As long as you don't hurt anybody, I think what you're doing is fine. Um, so yeah, it's important to learn from bad people, but not become like them, but understand what their tactics are. And I would say that th this is the, the best solution that I've come up with. We, we can't just, you know, get rid of all the sociopaths. So Great. Uh, could you say again where that article is? Because that is an article that is of interest to our people in our community, the issue of how to deal with sociopaths. Where, where can we find that? You can find it on Trigger Warning. Um, it's down right now. I'll type it into the chat. I mean, it's not down. Like You can still read the articles, um, but we're currently on hiatus because we're pivoting Trigger Warning into a new brand. Um, but yeah, that is okay. one of the articles there. Okay, got it. We'll put it on our, if it's available, I'll put it up on our uh, episode page as we will all the links of things that we talked about. Great. Well, that's actually a good transition to my next topic, which is, you know, you, I think currently still position yourself as someone who's interested in the new art right. You wrote a book by that title and you talk about it from time to time. What is the new art right? And I know it has to do with aesthetics, but why don't you just uh, go with that and then I'll get into some questions about the book itself. Sure. Sure. The New Art Road is the name of my book. It's a current that I created for people to build a new aesthetic movement. Quite simply, the conservative mainstream right and the alt-right are just as bad as the social justice left to me. So we need to create options where creative people are able to communicate, build, and produce without being targeted by social justice mobs and without being annoyed by like bonehead, you know, like ultra America first types, you know what I mean? So, so we need an art right full of creative people that are unbound by the social justice political correct narrative. 
we need to be building our own institutions, building our own theater scenes. We need to be building our own companies and doing it with our own ethos. And um, just to be clear, like I'm not a traditional right winger in any way. My social views are pretty center left. Um, and economically, I'm a, a centrist at this point, if you can believe it. I'm a, a radical centrist, right? Um, but there, there is like a metaphysical realm, you know, on the right that I find a lot more interesting. Um, that's how I got into philosophers like Evola um, Spengler and the Neganon and like even more, you know, um, <laughs> canceled philosophers like Yagi. Um, not, not because I like agreed with what they're saying, um, but because I enjoyed exploring that current. Um, I, I dubbed the term psychic fascism, um, which is being able to explore fascism without advocating for a fascist government or being a fascist yourself, letting your mind wander. Now, I'm not sure I can get my head around that. When I think of fascists, I think of <laughs> en enemies of civilization. Yeah, yeah, no, that, that's, okay, that, that's what I mean. It's like, that is exactly what they are. But if we have like a more psychic form of that, where people are exploring dark areas of their mind and not hurting people, okay? If we have people that are engaged, you know, in artistic projects on like, for example, a guy, he makes a painting that is extremely, uh, offensive, but it's also beautiful and provocative. You know, um, he, he's not actually, you know, advocating for a fascist government, but he is, you know, like displaying imagery that really breaks down borders and boundaries of people's minds. He's making them think in a new way. Um, this is why I'm really big against censorship of the arts, um, because I think people need to, to see it all, the good and the bad and the ugly. And I think that the art right should be a community of creatives that are willing to think as extreme as they can that are also creating things, but that are not, you know, advocating for fascist government or hurting each other. So I, I hope that clarifies things for you. That helps a little bit. Let me uh, just push back a little bit. You know, I think about movements that for which aesthetics were significant. Some of them aren't such good ones, right? You think of Nazi aesthetics, kind of a weird mix of German Romanticism, realism, and Greco-Roman classicism. And you think of the Stalinist socialist realism that actually were taken quite seriously by those regimes. But then we look at other revolutions that were mostly benevolent and benign and good for society, the American Revolution and the British Glorious Revolution of 1688. I would say neither of those had an aesthetic component. They were essentially just continued on in the way of their societies with respect to aesthetics. So from that, those samplings of history, might we say that trying to combine aesthetics with revolution might not be a good thing? Yeah, I mean, obviously, like, the, the Hitler example is obvious. Um, if you've seen the movie Max, it's about Hitler as an art school student, and he makes very bad paintings that nobody likes, um, and then he makes some paintings of the Third Reich, and his art teacher says, this is the most incredible work of art I've ever seen. Um, it's a really good movie because it shows how aesthetics and politics can get convoluted, and suddenly you, you have a horrific group of actual fascists, right? Um but, you know, like, you can say that you like, uh, you know, like Nazi uniforms or Nazi architecture and be really against Nazism. Um, there's no reason you can't. Um, like, like uh, brutalist architecture, it has fascist connotations. Um, and then you have, like, the, the Italian fascists. They were futurists first. Um, and the Italian futurists were an art movement of, of people like us who talked about difficult issues that others were afraid of addressing um they wrote um i don't know if you've read the futurist manifesto um but i really really like this kind of expression what i don't like is to see violence what i don't like is to see people get hurt what i don't like is to see authoritarian governments but do i want to see brilliant people that have dark ideas collaborate artistically absolutely Okay. I guess I can go with that. But again, I would, you know, at least from my perspective, think that what this alt-right in particular is suggesting is the exact opposite of what we need for our society. On the other hand, I'm with you. I don't have any use for the politically correct social justice warriors either, right? What we really need to do is create a space for sensible people to create a better future for us all. Yes. Uh, Let's dig in a little bit into the uh, new art, right? The book. One of the essays I thought was interesting. I'd love to get your thoughts on what, what you were trying to get at here. It was called Fighting Words, to be precise. And uh, kind of the core of it was 10 Tips for Successful Counter-Revolution. What were you trying to get at there? 
I was making fun of listicles. At the time, there were a lot of really dumb BuzzFeed top 10 lists coming out, and they were just so ridiculous. So I decided I was going to mock them and come up with 10 tips for the counter-revolution. You know, um, it was silly. You know, take, take it with a grain of salt. This is one of the less serious pieces in the New Art Right. Um, listicles are dumb. Might as well make a funny one. Um, and that was what went into my head when I, I wrote that. Um, but there, there are a few successful tips in there. Um, like, you know, make friends. Get out of the house. You know, don't sit around complaining about how the left is winning. You know, do something yourself that's going to leave an impact. Um, don't, don't be a victim. Be, be a winner, not a whiner. You know, like if you're just some guy complaining about white genocide, how are you different from the antifas, you know? How, how are you different from the, the protest groups? You're doing the same thing as them. So, yeah, um, it, it's a satirical list, um, but there, there were some, some nuggets of, of truth in there, if you know what I mean. Yeah, well, there was one I found that was kind of interesting. I'm not sure I 100% understood it, but maybe I got a sense of it, which was, except that the right wing is the proletariat. Yeah, so this was written in 2014, to be clear. Um, and it was at a time where the left, um, and I was still pretty much a leftist at the time. I mean, I'm, I'm still the, a leftist according to some people, um, but there are also people that, that think I'm a, a new Nazi myself, so who knows? Um, but it was really just the realization that I had um, that a lot of the anti-PC left is starting to have now is that the left is the elite, um, not that everybody on the left is an elite, um, but the Democratic Party is a party of elites. And the Republican Party is the the um, the unwashed masses. The right has become the new proletariat. There's no room left on the left. That is how I like to put it. That sounds like that's a lot of your reaction against the left, which causes you to use at least right terminology, is that you don't believe there's room for real discourse on the left anymore. Yeah. Yeah, there's definitely not. Um, and I... Like, like I said, I'm not like the right winger or anything. Um, my idea um, for the art right is kind of like to vanguard the alt right into something that is more about creation, self expression, just being oneself and doing cool things, essentially. You know, um, and to do your own thing, you you might not be able to do that on the left anymore. So what what you see is really brilliant people, philosophers, scientists, engineers that would have been left 10 years ago. Um, but now, because the left has become so elitist and the right has become the proletariat, these people are kind of like shoved into the right. It's a, a disturbing phenomenon, you know, um, because I grew up uh, pretty attached to the left. I believed in human rights and I was anti-censorship. I was anti-globalization. Um, but now all of these things are apparently right-wing. Um, so who knows? I mean, these, these labels are, are so stupid. And that's why the new art right is about just transcending that whole thing and subverting it and creating a, a better, a, a game B of my own, you know? Yeah, exactly. I was going to say, I think it sounds like your heart is more as a game B person than as an alt-writer, right? Uh, Just to be clear, I was never an alt-writer. Okay. I was a, an alternative writer because I, I write cool things. Um, but no, I, I was <laughs> never, sorry. Um, I, I was never on the alt-right in any shape or form. Uh, that's a good pun, though. I like that. <laughs> an alt-writer, right? With a W, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so I... I never liked people with low IQs that attack people for their appearances. Um, like, these are anti-Semitic, misogynistic, very mean people. And there's absolutely no reason to be associated with the alt-right at all. Um, and if, if I hear somebody think that I'm alt-right, like, I just laugh because the alt-right has been so nasty to me. Like, they've called me every name in the book. I'm so no, I'm, I'm not a alt right. I was I was a target of the alt right because I was just a weird intellectual doing my own thing. Um, <laughs> so, um, but I, I will say that I believe that a lot of the alt right just comes from alienation from society. These people they they don't fit in um, in the mainstream. They feel unwelcome in public institutions, and they feel like they just need a community. You know, they, they feel like they just need a community. A lot of these people are young and they, they feel like they can't discuss their real views um, with their peers, their parents. I mean, I had a friend of mine, um, a pretty, you know, centrist, you know, center left friend who was told me, he, he told me that he was afraid of getting doxxed because of his views. I'm like, you're like 
the leftists. Like, why are you afraid of getting doxxed? And it's like, well, my friend just got doxxed. And, you know, people are getting really mad because they don't like my opinions. I'm like, you are like the most militaries, you know, like if, if you're afraid of getting doxxed, like I think we, we have a, a climate of fear, you know? Yeah, and I will say this is something that's ugly uh, in our society, and it's why, you know, my own view is both fuck both the right and the left. Neither Ooh. of them struck me as what's useful, and they're both turning vicious against each other, right? Oh, as yeah. you said, you've been attacked in bad ways by alt rights, and probably by uh, some of the lefties too. Yeah, I, I've been attacked by by the antifas. They decided it was funny to dox me, um, and they, they said, and I quote. Like, how can you say that she's not a Nazi? She stated here that she wanted to change the alt-right into some gothic horseshit. I, I think that was like the word they actually used. Um, something like some avant-garde gothic horseshit. And that was what they thought that I thought that the alt-right was. No, like the alt-right is like, bye, bye, neo-Nazis. We're going to do our own thing here. And you guys can stay over there, you know, like getting arrested at marches but we're going to build empires of the mind, you know, because that, that's what we do with philosophers. Yep, I guess. I, I would, I just, my advice, I'd say call it something besides the, the, the art right. Cause, All right. Uh, yeah, I guess people associate that with the, the art right now. Um, I, I really, I hope they don't though, because like nobody that knows me ever thought of that. Um, they could see that it was actually like an overthrow of the alt-right, that it was like we were looking to replace the alt-right with the alt-right. We, we were deliberately gentrifying the alt-right. That was exactly what we wanted to do. That was the plan. Yep. And I, I got to say, I was, you know, having watched your tweets over the months, I was a little surprised to discover that you had, you know, as I said, flirted with the neo-reaction. But now I understand that you're kind of a zeitgeist surfer looking for interesting and peculiar things to riff off of, right? Yeah, also just a fiercely independent thinker who does not believe that enforcing social norms on what you can think is a good idea. Yep, and of course, anyone knows me knows it's pretty hard for anyone to get to put their social norms on me either, right? Take your social norms off my body. Exactly. <laughs> Another interesting uh, essay in the book was called New Institution. Yeah. And you mentioned the H.L. Mencken conference in Baltimore that you'd attended, and I had to smile and laugh. I've read every book H.L. Mencken has written, including ones that are almost impossible to get your hands on. Uh, he is in a, uh, I have a library in my, uh, in my apartment in town. I'm, I'm trying to get the box set. I love that box set. I'm trying to get my hands on it. Yeah, I got mostly old antique copies of stuff, you know, stuff from the Ooh. 30s and the 20s. I even have his H.L. Uh, Mencken baby book, which is essentially no where he actually, for money, wrote a book on how uh, mothers should take care of young babies. <laughs> Whoa! See, I had no idea you have like obscure. Yeah, uh, this is like talking to friends about like they have like a limited edition vinyl. <laughs> you know, this is great. Exactly. Yeah, this is the ancient stuff. But anyway, I thought it was an interesting I, point. I love um, Notes on Democracy. It was just a really good book. You know, I just but the way that he views the world is similar to the way to the way that I view the world. Um, it's more like a like um, Nietzsche or like Stirner. It's individualist. You know, um, or, or even like um, like the Junger concept of the anarch you know like the self-serving individual that does things for their own reasons not for the reasons of the community not for the reasons of the the government but just because they want to do them you know complete freedom of action you know the one book i do not have is mencken's translation of nietzsche mencken wrote the very first translation of nietzsche into english in 1909 when he was like 19 years old and it's very clear that Mencken is a, a Nietzsche kind of character. Yeah. But yeah, there's an awful lot of interesting stuff in Mencken. But on the other hand, he has a, you know a dark side too. And you know, I've also read his diaries, which were released mm. uh, I don't know 20 years ago. Excerpts from them. Yeah. Uh, and wow. they're very interesting. But it's also pretty damn clear that he was a pretty bad anti-Semite. That's Ooh. worth knowing as well. See, I, I actually I did not know that. I've only read notes on democracy. I just saw him as like an individualist anarchist. I thought he was like a Nietzschean, like a Sterner type. Um, he is mostly, but he's a guy from that era, yeah. from the South, more or less. Baltimore mm. was sort of a Southern town. And so he had uh, that old boy anti-Semitism in a pretty nasty fashion, but it, he didn't seem to let it affect his personal life. His business partner was Jewish. His publisher was Jewish. He got along fine with Jewish people, but he does yeah. have an ugly anti-Semitic streak in it that he cannot be denied. Mm. But on the other hand, he's an interesting writer. So I would not, I would say I'm not going to yeah. cancel him. I'm not going to pull down his statue. I'm not going to yeah. get rid of my 
my H.L. Mencken library. I'm going to acknowledge that he was one of the more brilliant thinkers of the early part of the 20th century, but he had a flaw. He was an anti-Semite. So, uh, yeah, you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And, um, as a Jewish woman who has interacted in right-wing intellectual circles, um, I've actually attempted to dissect anti-Semitism and figure out what it's about. Um, you know, and I, I would like to understand it. And one of the conclusions that I came to is that it's about fear of the other, you know, um, also like a fear of, neuroticism this is a big one um a simple distaste for people who might not have like the perfect um like level of conscientiousness you know what, what i mean that there definitely seems to be like a a bit of a, a hatred for the other and um and then the other dissection i made of anti-semitism was that it was just um, like the far right's scapegoat was the Jews. Um, but what they really meant was like the global corporations doing trade that were like affecting nations' ability to thrive. Um, but they didn't say that. They said the Jews. Um, when maybe a lot of the grievances were simply like global corporations. Um, but, you know, you see you have a problem with global corporations. People think you're an anti-Semite. Then some people jump how high. Um, it, it's complicated, you know? Yeah. On, on the other hand, to me, it's a, a signal when people start talking about the Jews to just realize that there's something seriously wrong with their world model, <laughs> right? I go, yeah. Uh, you know, the, you know, I, I love the quote somewhere that what is it that uh, anti-Semitism is the bigotry of idiots, something mm-hmm. like that. And uh, you know, it's a, a very good warning sign for people if you're in, involved in a community yep. where people start talking about the Jews, just head for the door, right? And you'll be better off for it, right? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like there was a time when I tried to argue with them and I said, well, look, there are a lot of Jews that don't believe in global corporatism. You know, there are a lot of Jews that have no media power. Um, but I realized like these people, they were going to hate the Jews no matter what. Exactly. I, mean, I didn't want to be, what was it? Um, their shell of metal. There's actually a name um, for, for like the, the one Jew that's like accepted by the Nazis. I'm kind of like the Uncle Tom's. There's also the shuttle of metals. And I'm like, I, I don't want to be a shuttle of metal. Like I'm just an independent thinker. Who wants to live my own life and build cool things and talk to people who interest me? Um, so, um, yeah, like hatred of the other is bad. Um, and I do think that a lot of it comes from that. And, um, like I said, um, a lot of it comes from um, a, a racism related to neurobiology. Um, there are a lot of people that think personality traits are, are hardwired. You know, you've got the big five personality test. Um, and some people just happen to. Be a little lower in consciousness, a little higher on neuroticism. And, you know, if you have a problem with somebody because they're weird, you know, which I think a lot of anti-Semitism is just like a hatred of the weird, right? Um, then the problem is you. So the problem is that you are a boring person who does not understand life. Um, and that that's their loss. I would agree. I'd agree. Let's go on to talk about another essay. What's so bad about cosmopolitanism? Oh, yeah, the provocative title. Yeah, what, what, what were you getting at there? Okay, so in the nationalist community, people scapegoat cosmopolitanism. They say there's some cosmopolitan, bohemian, Marxist, you know. Um, but cosmopolitanism wasn't always a way for people to like dominate you through Marxism. Um, it was simply a way for people to explore all types of life, um, to travel through different countries, to learn uh, about how different people lived. Um, and cosmopolitanism was a pursuit of knowledge. It was a pursuit of culture, of learning, of experience. But now the way that, that people use the term, they're, they're talking more about you know a certain type of like bohemian intellectual that they personally do not like um and I, I don't think that's the right way to go about it i mean first of all if you really wanted to you could become a cosmopolitan nationalist there's no reason you can't support national borders and also like the idea of traveling and meeting new people i mean that there's nothing contradictory about that i think a lot of people they, they just don't understand nuance and to them like anything cosmopolitan or anything like marxist is bad to them i'm even anything you know creative is is bad to them this is why the the nazis burnt the the books of their more interesting philosophers um and and this is also 
why there, there was the, the Nazi purge, you know, the, the Night of the Long Knives, you know, a lot of the um, early Nazis that were called Strasserists, you know, they were considered to be like a degenerate because they were gay and creative. Um, so most people don't even know that. They think there was like only one Nazi party. They, they don't even know that there was actually like a, a split and that the um, more creative Nazis got, got killed, you know, during, during that historical night. Um, but of course I wasn't there, you know, in, in history, you know, we, we have the, the news um, and the news is just like a debased version of history. So we don't know what really happened. Um, but what, what I will say is that we should always question everything that we're told and form our own conclusions. Yeah, that's a that's always a good idea. And you you mentioned the Strassers. You know, people don't, as you said, most people don't know about that ancient history. But you know, Nazi was National Socialist. So there actually were socialists in the National Socialists, and the Strasser brothers were more or less the uh, leaders of that faction. And that was another reason they were kicked out. And I think one of them was killed in the Night of the Long Knives. So there's a lot of oddities in the in that history. So basically, you you come out in favor of cosmopolitan. Again, I'd say that's uh, not very compatible with today's uh, right wing, to say the least, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and again, this is why I'm using the term I right? Because I'm saying you guys are doing something that I am not interested in. What I'm interested in doing is over here, you know? Got it. So then the final essay, I think it was actually in an appendix or something, mm -hmm. uh, which more or less summed up where you were coming from. It was called Toward a Dark Bohemia. Tell us about that. Yeah, so the Dark Bohemia is what I envision is in your terms, it would be like a game B for the new right, which is a world in which people can live together creatively, where people can express themselves, where they can have a good time, have intellectual conversations, where they can engage in theater, philosophy, the arts, um, almost like a, a symposium that becomes a movement that is the, the dark leukemia, people exploring the darker areas of consciousness having an experience in which they're not confounded by reason and rationality. They're, they're not a, a part of this, the, the opiate of the masses, right? Reason is an opiate of the masses, but it's still a preferred tool of control among the elite. You know, it, it's kind of like a, a materialist prison, right? So um, while we do need reason, you know, like as an enlightened society, what we don't need is reason turning into a part of this neoliberal, monolithic, gamey culture. So what's the answer? You create a dark bohemia. You know, you create a world where we have a fiery new metapolitical current, right? Um, and we engage in everything from having fashion shows to having live bands play that have this really dark and powerful energy. You know, um, and we, we didn't have to do this in a way that's like uh, what some people might say it's satanic. Um, no, it's just exploring darker topics and exploring darker ideas in a really creative way. E even poetry, you know, art, um, even just getting on stage in a costume and giving a powerful speech. That is the dark bohemia, people uniting to form the, this new um, this this new game, I'll call it um, Game Dark Bohemia. Yeah, um, so that's a it's a bit of a romantic essay. I'm I'm not going to deny that, um, but I, I think it is important to understand how reason um, and utilitarianism, and I, I know Spangler talked a lot about this, um, are, are being used to kind of like take the the soul out of people and, and turn them into like these these non-player characters. And I, I think that we need to fight that by creating a a resurrection of philosophy. Yeah, I think that's a, that is a good vision. You know, it does oftentimes feel like game A is a flat land that has lost its soul. We're all driven by this machine to maximize money on money return and there and whatever beauty and conviviality exists kind of seems to exist almost despite the the behemoth itself and if we started to think about what as a society look at look like where these kinds of uh aesthetic and personal and uh, particularly in my mind convivial the idea of you know celebration with other people face to face in song and dance and drink and maybe some other crazy stuff right mm -hmm. and made that central to our society rather than money on money return would be heading towards on a better road for sure 
I would like to see that. And I don't, I don't think money is the problem that a lot of people on the left do. Um, a lot of these anti-capitalists are, are kind of, um, they don't understand that the core issue is the utilitarian lack of interest in things that really blow people's minds. Um, it's more of like an interest in just like sticking to what they consider to be the most efficient thing. But they're, what, what they do when they do that is they lock out new possibilities and they actually become less efficient as a result because they cut out anything on the margins, you know, that might like temporarily create a bit too much entropy. But if all they're doing is weeding out entropy, you know, then, then they're basically weeding out growth. And it's not that entropy is good, but entropy is real. Entropy exists. And maybe instead of like weeding out entropy, we should find out how to, to scale it properly. Um, I have a model, I call it scaling volatility, where if you scale volatility positively, then you have vitality. Um, but if you scale volatility negatively, then you have decline. Um, it's important to understand that entropy is a force that you don't just have to run away from. You can learn the edges of it. You can explore entropy and like figure out the way to make it work best for you. But unfortunately, the majority of people are just like, oh no, entropy. And then they think that they're like making progress when they're actually like holding back the evolution of um, the species and of civilization. Got it. That's an interesting vision. Uh, let's see what else we got here. A few things left to go. You've talked about from time to time uh, about anarchy. What are your thoughts on, on anarchy as an alternative? Well, I always considered myself an anarchist because I didn't believe in authoritarian rule and I believed in the sovereignty of the individual. Um, but, you know, a lot of anarchists, they've called me, well, some not nice names. Um, I found myself more like on the sterner, you know, individualist anarchist side of things. Um, I remember taking a lot of flack because I, I worked for an anti-PC anarchist site called Attack the System, you know, which, I mean, I, I don't even know if I would be an anarchist, like, according to, like, the terms of what anarchy means now. Um, for, for me, it was always about self-sovereignty. So, you know, people are like, oh, so you're a libertarian. Um, I, I've made the joke that a libertarian is just an anarchist that gets wise to success. So, um, yeah, yeah, that, that's how I feel about that. <laughs> All righty. Now, as a uh, strong woman who's uh, in, you know, sailed in many different seas, I'd love to get your thoughts on sex, gender, and all that. I think the sex and gender are talked about too much, and there's a big overimportance placed on them. Whether we're talking about sexual adventures that people have like on their blogs, you know, like, I don't want to read about it. Sorry. Um, you know, like I, I want to do it with my girlfriend and, you know, um, I, I, I don't want to read these, you know, like vice articles about somebody's sexual charade. I, I think that there's too much information out about it. You know, I, I find it to be a kind of, um, I don't want to say degenerate, right. Um, but, uh, classless, you know, it, it's, it's vulgar. Um, so yeah, like have the best sex that you can, but like, do you really have to announce it all the time? Like whether you're, um, like an incel complaining about how you can't have sex or like a sex worker talking about how sex work is like the best thing in the world or like just some horny guy who's talking about like how many times he got laid. It's like, aren't you guys going to talk about something more interesting than sex or aren't you like sex is sacred to me, sex is sacred and it should be kept private. So um, that is my view on sex. Um, my view on gender is that I really do not care. Um, I am bisexual, you know, um, so I like men, I like women. I like who I like. I, I don't really care about all the gender wars. I, I don't um, have a problem with trans people. Um, the trans friends that I have have told me they have a problem with like the weaponizing of transgenderism as like a political cause. Um, and they, they don't support like um, counseling people for using the wrong pronouns. They think that's stupid. And they say, I, they say fuck pronouns. And these are like trans friends of mine. So um, I think a lot of it is overblown in the media. What happens is, um, you know, people that they magnify like the really, you know, deranged, you know, pronoun police. And, and they make you think that like all trans people are like that when they're not. 
And I also just think that there are more important issues. Like, I don't care if somebody is trans. It doesn't matter to me. Like, I, I just don't care. Um, sh- sure, I'd like to see an end to, to pronoun policing. Um, it, it goes overboard. Um, when you have, like, a poor white working class construction worker who just uses the wrong pronoun, and suddenly he lost, he lost his job because he didn't have the education to know what the, the pronoun was. It's a horrible thing when that happens. Um, but there, there's no reason not to be respectful to people. And refer to them as their preferred pronouns. Um, I, I, I just don't get care so much. To me, this is like really mundane, to be honest. Gotcha. All right. That sounds, uh, you know, I understand where you're coming from there. And finally, something you tweeted about recently or retweeted, I think, actually, the recent Slate Star Codex controversy, where for those uh, those folks who aren't following this, this is a uh, uh, a blog, and I would call it the rationalist tradition. In fact, I believe the author originally started writing on Less Wrong, which is uh, one of the core rationalist blogs. And he was being interviewed by the New York Times, and the New York Times was going to publish a story, but insisted on using his real name. And for various reasons, he thought he could be a victim of the uh, online mobs and said that if they went ahead and did that, he'd take his blog down, and he did. Yeah, yeah, it's a shame. Scott is a prolific blogger and doxing people is horrible. You, you should never do that. I mean, the, the thing is, like, he is actually a good guy. Like, when I was going through some serious trauma, he referred me to a professional. Like, Scott is a, a pillar in the rationalist community. He has never said or done anything racist. Um, he, he even wrote, like, an anti-neo-reactionary FAQ. You know, he, he does not agree with any of that stuff. Um, so I really, I have no idea. I'm not like a rationalist insider. Um, I I have rationalist friends, um, but I I like to explore rationality as an artist. Um, I, I don't know if the New York times article is even going to come out. I'm like, we're talking about earlier. I don't care about the New York times. I'm never going to get a job there. So, um, I don't know. I mean, journalists are bullies. Um, and that they do go after easy targets. It's possible that Scott is autistic and maybe didn't realize that like something in his blog but he said could be interpreted as racist. Like, I, I really don't know. Um, I, I hate these witch hunts. Like, I hate the way these journalists do this. Um, and it's because they're not going after the real bad guys. They're not going after, like, the true evil people, you know, like the wolves in sheep's clothing who pretend to, to be, uh, you know, saints. You know, that the most evil people in the world are not going to act like the villains. Um, but instead, the, these activists and journalists, they, they go after innocent people who were actually like pillars of our communities. Um, and I, I think they should stop and hopefully they, they get pushed back from this whole incident. Yep. I think that's, uh, I would agree with you on that. Well, Rachel, I think this has been a very interesting conversation. We've covered all kinds of ground. Uh, I learned a bunch of things while I was doing the research for it. I really like to thank you for coming on the show. Yeah, yeah, it was fun. I'm happy to talk in the future. And yeah, I hope to see you at the Elixir Salon. Well, we'll see if we can make it. Well, thanks again, Rachel. Very good. Awesome. Take care. Production services and audio editing by Jared Jaynes Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.